This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 15th, 2019. I'm Sarah Kresge. On this week's show, science writer Shannon Hall joins me to talk about visiting an ice-locked Arctic research vessel and the difficulty of taking measurements in this pristine environment when you're the noisiest, smokiest, brightest thing around. And I talk with Tanmoy Samanto about the extreme heat of the sun's corona. His team might have figured out why the solar atmosphere is a million degrees hotter than the surface of the sun. This is one of those stories where I'm reading it and I'm thinking, being a journalist kind of sounds like a dream job because this is a story about a a journalist, Shannon Hall, visiting a research ship way up at the 85th parallel embedded in Arctic ice. And she's here to talk about the trip and how tricky it is to do fine measurements of the environment when you're in the Arctic and you're the hottest, noisiest, brightest, smokiest thing around. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Sarah. So what was it like to get so far north? How did you get to this research vessel that's called the Polar Stern? It took a really long time to get that far north. So we left Tromsø, Norway on September 20th. And we traveled through open water for about five days, heading east along the Siberian Arctic. We moved through a new time zone just about every single day. So we lost an hour of sleep every single night for about 10 days. It was pretty exhausting. (laughs) And then, yeah, we hit a point at about 130 degrees east where we really started heading further north uh, and entered the ice. And then you had to actually break through ice to get to your final destination? About five days into the trip, we hit the ice edge. So the very edge of the polar ice cap. And we saw our first ice and started crushing through it, which was a pretty wild experience. It was the middle of the night when we first entered the ice. So I actually heard it and felt it before I saw it. It truly felt like we had run aground. It was just so loud. I mean, it sounded like a shovel scraping pavement, except 10,000 times louder. And it sent everything in my cabin rattling. It would have been truly terrifying had I not been forewarned that this was going to happen. But basically, I mean, the Arctic is icy. It's really, really icy. And that means that even the world's best icebreakers 
are locked out of this region in winter and in spring. And that's a huge problem if you want to better understand the climate, right? Because you're missing half of the year. Right. So this mission, instead of fighting the ice, the team decided to embrace it. And they headed up, they searched for an ice flow. And then on October 4th, we crashed into that ice flow. We turned off our engines and we let the ice freeze in around us. Wow. So the idea is to become just sort of this fixed feature on the ice flow itself and stay there for an entire year. It's pretty amazing that you got to see the start of this mission and it's been dubbed Mosaic. What does that stand for? The running joke is that nobody knows, but it stands <laughs> It stands for the Multidisciplinary Drifting Observatory for the Study of Arctic Climate Mosaic. This ship is a, you know, a new kind of mission. These measurements have never been taken during this time of year before. What is the overarching goal of capturing all these data about the Arctic? The overarching goal is really to study climate change. The Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the world, and scientists don't yet understand why that is. So the opportunity to spend an entire year within the Arctic to study it during winter and spring when researchers are typically locked out of this region really provides an unprecedented opportunity to get at how the top of the globe is changing because it is changing rapidly. How long did you stay? So it took two weeks to get there. I was on board for the first two weeks of the mission, and then it <laughs> took two weeks to get home. <laughs> oh, you mentioned that the idea was to get these measurements that haven't been able to be taken before because of the ice and the timing. What kinds of measurements were they interested in? <laughs> the real question is what kinds of measurements weren't they interested in? I mean, <laughs> it, was such, it was such a huge endeavor. They were really studying everything. I mean, over the course of the next year, they will release helium balloons to study the atmosphere. They will drill into the ice to collect samples. They will fly helicopters above the ice to study the surface. They'll drop bottles into the ocean to shed light on the ecosystem. They will send remotely a remotely operated vehicle into the ocean on dives. They will scan the clouds with lasers. I mean, it is truly wow. never ending. <laughs> <laughs> all the, the things that they're looking at, water, air, ice, animals, these are all things that are affected by the presence of the ship. For example, the air around the ship is going to be warmer and dirtier than everywhere else. How do they deal with that? I was really surprised when I was out there just how big of a presence the ship had in the Arctic, which is pristine and vast and empty. Every research team is really dealing with these issues in different ways. For the atmospheric team, one of the biggest problems, of course, is the smoke the ship emits. And you could see this hanging on the horizon. You could see the smoke being emitted into the sky. And so one thing that they're doing is they're simply halting their measurements whenever the winds are blowing just right so that the smokestack is getting blown into their instruments. They're shutting things down and they're even running a vacuum to clean out their instruments so that no unwanted particles sort of get stuck in there. The researchers weren't just vulnerable to emissions from the ship itself. Visiting ships 
helicopters and snowmobiles could also elevate their readings. What were some of those numbers were kind of striking. Can you share those with us? Sure. So the Arctic is known for being pristine, which means that there might be 10 particles per cubic centimeter, which is amazingly small. New York City probably sees about 10,000 particles per cubic centimeter. But every time another icebreaker swung by, which happened quite a lot in the beginning, since there were two icebreakers who were really helping to get the mission ramped up, and every time snowmobiles kicked on and every time helicopters took off, the particles nearby would also jump up. So at one point, a scientist saw 28,000 particles per cubic centimeter in her readings, which is as big as New York City and 3,000 times what you expect to see in the Arctic. It was very striking. What about the light pollution that the ship emits? You, I was so sad that I read in your story that you never really got to see the stars when you were there. Yeah, that was heartbreaking. My background is in astronomy. When I learned that I was going to be there for the beginning of this mission, I was really excited to experience the beginning of polar night. So every fall, the North Pole gets plunged into darkness and the sun does not rise for months on end. And I was really excited to see the stars at noon. And I was especially excited (laughs) to see the North Star right above my head, right? Because at mid-latitudes, it's much lower in the sky. But yeah, the lights were just so bright on board the ship that I did not get to see a single star. How did that light interfere with the scientific mission and how do the researchers take it into account? It's pretty tricky. So the ecology team in particular really wants to know how life survives the polar night when they can't rely on photosynthesis. So in order to avoid light from the ship, the team actually is heading out to a remote dark site. They're taking a snowmobile pretty far away from the ship on the other side of this pressure ridge where there isn't any light. And they will collect samples there and then take those samples back to the ship. I'm not going to say it's dangerous, but they have to take a number of safety precautions into account because those lights are important. They use the lights to light up the research station so that scientists can see in the dark. They use those lights to monitor cracks that are opening up within the Hmm. ice. And when I was there, they often had the lights on nearby polar bears. (laughs) One thing that really stuck out to me in your story was this mention of polar bear guards. What are those? There were six people on board whose sole job was to guard the scientists from polar bears. Polar bears are actually a very serious threat in the Arctic. They they do consider us food and they're very smart animals. Every time a team goes out onto the ice, they have to go out with an armed polar bear guard to protect them should a threat arise. And a mom and her cub did visit us several times during the first few weeks that we were out there. Oh, boy. The researchers couldn't actually turn off the ship altogether. Some things always had to be running, right? Yes. Some things always had to be running. The ship very much acts as a power plant, a command center, a floating lab, and even a hotel. I mean, it had a cappuccino machine, which was my best friend, 
but it also had huh. a sauna, a swimming pool, a gym, a bar. And then it even had these small shops that would open up for 15 minutes every day and sell chocolate, snacks, tobacco, toiletries, and booze. How many researchers were on the ship when you were there? When I was there, there were probably about 40 researchers on board the ship. But over the course of a year, there will be about 300 scientists who come and go. It seems likely because of climate change that more ships are going to end up in the Arctic, even this far north. This one ship has such a big impact. What is it going to be like to have many more ships up there? That's a good question. And I think it's a question that researchers don't exactly know the answer to yet. But it's kind of one of the fun spinoff experiments from Mosaic. So obviously the scientists are there to study, study the changing climate, but we can also study some of the impacts of the ship. So Matthew Shoup, who was one of the co-coordinators of Mosaic, argued that yes, aerosols, these particles from the smokestack are going to be a problem, but they're also an opportunity to better understand how aerosols will change the Arctic environment. And obviously, we care very much about that as Arctic traffic will only increase in the future. Thank you so much, Shannon. Thank you, Sarah. Shannon Hall is a freelance science journalist based in Boulder, Colorado. You can find a link to her article and I'm sure many beautiful pictures at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Tanmoy Samanto about solving some solar mysteries. This week's episode of the Science Podcast is brought to you by Bayer. From advances in health to innovations in agriculture, Bayer is advancing science for a better life. Because someone with heart issues should still be able to have their heart jump with joy. Because a farmer using less water should still be able to grow their crops. Because someone getting older should still be able to act young. At Bayer, this is why we science. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org slash news. Scroll down a little bit. Click subscribe on the right side. One of the big open questions about the sun, yes, our sun, is why the solar corona, the outermost part of the sun's atmosphere, is so much hotter than the surface of the sun. Why is something so far away from all the heat-generating action inside the sun, why is the corona a million degrees hotter than the surface? 
Tanmoy Samanto and colleagues published a paper this week in Science suggesting that solar spicules might be the cause of this temperature difference. Tanmoy is here to tell us what exactly a spicule is and so much more. Hi, Tanmoy. Hi, good morning. How much hotter is the corona? I mean, how does it compare to the interior of the sun, the surface of the sun? I said it was a million degrees, is that right? Yeah, it is indeed million degree hot in the corona. The surface of the sun is much cooler, which is around 5,000 to 6,000 Kelvin. Very strange. Yeah, because the, most of the energy is generated in the core of the sun, where the temperature is around 15 million degree. But when you move further away from the core or the heat source, the temperature should decrease. And that's exactly what happened for the sun in the inside. But as you'd expect that it will again decrease further in the atmosphere, but what we found that is like around million degree hot. So that's one of the biggest and yet to be solved mysteries in solar physics or astrophysics, as you pointed out. Well, let's turn to this term, other term I mentioned in the intro, which is a spicule. What is a solar spicule? They're like needle-like structure found everywhere in the sun. And at the moment, there is around million of them are present. This jets have very high speed of like 100 to 200 kilometers per second. What is the spicule made of? Spicule are made of plasma. So it's magnetized plasma. So there are little spikes that appear all over the surface of the sun kind of constantly, and they're short-lived. They don't hang around for a long time, and they move very quickly. Mm, yes, that is, that is absolutely right. How big are they? They're generally around 5,000 kilometers but as I mentioned, their needle-like structure, their width is very small, like 100 kilometers oh, yeah. or so. And so that's why it's so difficult to observe them, and you need really big telescope. We've known about them for a long time, but we really haven't had the instruments to fully understand their activity until now, basically. Yeah, that's absolutely right, because you really need really big telescope and modern technology to find or observe well, you know, this small-scale jet-like structure. That was missing earlier. So you got to use a very big telescope and some other instruments to look at several features of the sun. Let's start with our telescope here. Can you describe it? There's the first instrument, which is a ground-based telescope at Big Bear Solar Observatory in the USA. 1.6 meter telescope, which is uh, currently the largest solar telescope. So that's why you get really, really ultra high resolution image of the sun from this telescope. In addition to using this, this telescope on the ground to see the spicules, you also were watching UV light um, around the sun, and that helps you track the temperature of the corona. But you couldn't see that from the Earth. You had to do it from space? Yes. So we need to observe this UV light, which is generally giving the sense of million-degree temperature plasma. So that's why you need a telescope, which you have to fly above the atmosphere, and then you can observe the solar corona very clearly from these telescopes. I wanted to talk a little bit about the magnetic activity that you were able to monitor and how that connected with the formation of spicules. How did, how did you observe that part of these processes? So that is a very new thing, what we've done, and that's our main result, actually. Observing the magnetic field in the sun is very, very tricky, you know? Because you cannot have a magneto magnetometer or something. You have to sense the <laughs> sense it from the earth, just observing light. Light when in the presence of magnetic field can be polarized and then you make a really nice instrument which is sensitive to measure this polarization clearly. 
So Big Bear, they have really nice instrument where they can clearly observe this magnetic field in very high resolution. So we are observing very small scale magnetic features, which are not observed before with the other telescope, which are kind of smaller in size. So high resolution right. telescope, bigger telescope gives you measurement of this very small scale element. And those are important for generation of the specule. So you were able to see where the spicules were, and then you were also able to see what activities of the magnetic field on the surface of the sun were connected with the origins of the spicules. So what kinds of activities did you see? What did you see when the spicule was being formed? First, we manually identified the foot point of the spicule, the location of the birth of the spicule, right? And what we find during their origination, we see the small scale magnetic field, which is appearing or emerging from the inside of the sun. And when this appears, after a few minutes of this appearance, they probably reconnect with opposite polarity magnetic field. And then those reconnections cause a high-speed jet, which are specule. It was these large-scale magnetic fields and then these edge effects with like a small-scale magnetic field. Yes, yes. So currently, I think some many people or many solar physicists believe that these small-scale magnetic fields are probably due to this convection process which control them because they go up and down, they take the magnetic field with them. And then they, when they come out of the photosphere and then they sometimes goes up and there are this big magnetic field, like canopy-like structure, expanding big structure. And, and when these small guys, they have opposite polarity, they try to go up and then they immediately reconnect with this big structure and they produce this picture. So you were able to see this over and over again in all different regions of the sun? No, to observe the sun with high resolution, you really, from the ground particularly, you really need good seeing. So that is limitation of our solar astronomers. All the time, the cloud is coming, you know. So what we observe right. is for 10 minutes. We only have 10 minutes of data, and we observe <laughs> like around 250 spicule at a particular region. It will be very interesting to see what is happening in the other region. But from our statistical analysis, we found that this is the case, that magnetic reconnection between this small scale of polarity magnetic field and the big magnetic field patches, which are known as network field, causing the spicule. Using all these observations, UV to see the temperatures in the corona, seeing spicule formation with a big, strong telescope, and then also looking at the magnetic activity on the surface of the sun, you were able to make these important connections between spicule formation and coronal heating. But can you now do the math and, and say this is the amount of coronal heating that's due to spicules? When we do the math, we find that it's sufficient to supply the energy of what we need in the corona. So it's, it's very clear, actually. When you say that the spicule is heating the corona, is it actually feeding plasma to the corona? It's actually feeding plasma and also energy to the corona. Because there is another important thing about uh, sun, is solar wind. So there is a continuously mass flow flowing out of the sun. So that those, that is known as solar wind. So people also believe that this spicule provide mass to the solar wind because it's continuously there's some plasma material flowing out of the surface of the sun. So this spicule can play an important role to explain those uh, that solar wind Generalizing this out a little bit, is this something that is probably happening on a lot of stars? It's possible. It's because it's all related to the magnetic activity. And we know that most of the star, 
they have strong magnetic field. People found their, their coronal heating problem or coronal heating happening for other stars. So I think this could be the process which can explain the coronal heating problem even in other stars. Thank you so much, Tanmoy. Yeah, thank you. Tanmoy Sanmato is a postdoctoral researcher from Peking University in Beijing. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Just a reminder that this episode of the Science Podcast is brought to you by Bayer. Bayer develops treatments for bleeding disorders like hemophilia, so people can keep doing what's in their blood. From advances in health to innovations in agriculture, Bayer is advancing science for a better life. At Bayer, this is why we science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website, that's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can also subscribe, of course, to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places. The show is produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Special thanks to Megan Cantwell and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.